0: Pop Culture Affidavit presents 80 Years of DC Comics, Part 11, Science Fiction. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the podcast mini-series, 80 Years of DC Comics, presented by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Paneris, and the purpose of this mini-series is to highlight comic book genres that DC Comics has published in its 80 years history as well as stories that aren't often found in your typical top 10 list. Last time around, I finished up my two-part look at DC's licensed properties comics with one of their most famous, Star Trek. This time around, I'm going to stay within the same area and cover nearly 80 years of science fiction in DC Comics. I've got a ton of stuff for you, and that includes stories dating to all the way back to the 1930s, as well as some interludes that were all various stories in real fact comics during the 1940s, interludes that I will present without commentary between my main reviews. And when I get back, I'll start us off with a story straight from the 1930s. Star Trek. Comic books. Mythology. Video games. Toys. Star Wars. Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on The Hammer Podcast, presented by two true freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with, and be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at 2TrueFreaks.com. So I have already dug into the copy of New Fun number 5 that I downloaded, and I'm going to do it one more time, because among the many stories that are featured in that comic, we have Don Drake on the Planet Sorrow, a science fiction strip that was a running feature, and this particular story is a one-page tale written by Ken L. Fitch with art by Joseph Clemens Gretter. The creative credits are according to Mike's Amazing World, and the Don Drake stories ran all the way to New Fun number 17, with all of them re- being written by Fitch, whose career goes until All Funny Comics, number 22, in 1948. Greta was the artist in all the Don Drake stories, and his last credit is an issue of Strange Adventures from 1951, although there's a five-year gap between credits there, so maybe that issue of Strange Adventures was was in the can, or it was a reprint or something? Anyway, our chapter of the Don Drake story begins with Don Drake on the way to the midget city of Zatoria, and being attacked by the woman riders of the, of the Winged Death, which are women riding huge bird-like creatures throwing spears. But then new danger threatens all of them in the form of a giant octopus-like monster. Don gets them all out of it, and the women are grateful. And, and their captain Zastia orders to escort Don to Zatoria. They arrive there and see a giant footprint. And then Don is picked up by a giant hand. Needless to, de- to say, it's to be continued. I suppose I could track down the scans of all the Don Drake stories, but in the interest of time and the pretty large number of stories I have to cover, I'll just review this part as it is, especially since if I was a kid in the 1930s, I might have actually picked this one off the stands and read it at random. The scan I have isn't the best, and the text is a little hard to read, but I have to say that the art in this is absolutely gorgeous. It's such a classic science fiction piece of art. There are ten panels, and it starts off with this beautiful shot of these women... These lithe women attacking the heroes who are firing back at this crazed octopus looking alien. The Gulliver's travel aspect of the last couple of panels made me shrug a little, but when I put myself in the mindset of a kid from back then, I think I would have been just blown away by all this and wanted to know more. It's no wonder that science fiction has been such a mainstay for DC. But now it's time for the, the Rocket, Rocket Lanes, Lanes of, of Tomorrow! tomorrow. Perhaps not everyone will be able to afford a rocket mobile, but everyone will own a set of portable jets and expensive rocket tubes strapped to one's shoulders, which will enable the wearer to soar leisurely aloft at medium speeds. The miracle of jet propelled rockets will make possible the cheap transportation of freight. Pilots will be able to blast off from rocket ports of the future to roar across the ocean at meteoric speeds of 1,500 miles an hour. Inhabitants of desert regions will be able to receive fruits plucked from farms. Only a few hours previously, explorers of the future, probably called Rocketeers, will span the gulf of space via jet propulsion to make the fanciful dreams of Jules Verne and other visionaries a reality. First, the moon will be reached. Next, Mars. Planet after planet will be surveyed by future Columbuses of space. Here, we see adventures of tomorrow nearing Saturn, the ring planet. Trans-world tunnels bored straight through the Earth's diameter will make possible trips across the globe at lightning-flash speed. These super tubes, 8,000 miles from entrance to exit, will be roaring 24 hours a day with the rocket traffic of tomorrow's commerce. This will be the sh- greatest shortcut the world has ever known. <laughs> Coming into our next story, which is called Columbus in Space and is from Real Fact Comics number 6. I have to say that the one trade paperback that this is that has been an amazing resource for this episode is one that D- DC published in 1999 called Mystery in Space. It's a collection of various science fiction stories throughout DC's history and I found it completely at random by chance in a $5 trade bin at my LCS. DC organized the trade chronologically and put text pieces between each section talking about what the major themes were for that particular era, as well as the talent that worked on those stories. To me, that's just as awesome as the stories that are collected. I have way too many trades that are just the issues with some of the covers, and I have to say that I absolutely love any collection that has an intro or other text piece. The introductory pieces for the trades are by Stuart Moore, and the trade has an overall introduction by Larry Niven what the text piece says about the 1940s is that in that era of stories there was a motif of trying to predict the future and showing us how futuristic life would really be some of the predictions were incredibly off base however some actually were pretty true but the point is that there were there is a fun fascination with the future and that's definitely evident in this story columbus of space which was from january february 1947 and was written by mort weisinger with art by howard Sherman. Today, with Navy experts planning a jet-plane trip to the moon, Real Fact Comics presents a preview of things to come, the epic story of the first man to set foot on an alien planet. His name is not yet recorded in the history books, but school's boys of the year 2000 will be as familiar with the top to Mars as they are with Columbus's voyage to America. Based on authentic modern forecasts, this is the chronicle of Tommy Tomorrow, as it may happen in 1960. Who will be Tommy tomorrow? Maybe You! We see Tommy tomorrow applying to Rocket College in 1954 and thinking of how he will be piloting one of these soon. Then he begins his education, which includes grueling physical training, learning rocket engineering, mastering astronomy, and taking a solo flight across the Atlantic at 2,000 miles per hour. Those who are evaluating him deem him fit, and on the day of his graduation, he receives word that because he has the highest grades in his class, he has been chosen for Operation Mars. Another year of training and then one dawn as millions watch Tommy Tomorrow blasts off to begin the most daring adventure of all time. We see Tommy Tomorrow's trip to Mars. He's kept from being crushed against the floor of the ship during takeoff by floating in water. He looks back at the Earth as he flies toward the red planet. He figures the strap himself into his bed and wakes up to find himself floating. He gets a gorgeous view of the Milky Way. Then a meteor strikes the ship and Tommy Tomorrow has to get into a spacesuit and repair the hole from outside the ship. He finally, he lands on Mars with its red surface and weird plant life. Plants the American flag, sets off three atom flares, and then collects specimens of plant life and photographs the strange fossils there. Finally, he returns to Earth in a ticker tape parade. One of the things you'll notice first about this is that when they send Tommy Tomorrow into space he's wearing a World War II era pilot's uniform. The brown bomber jacket, brown pants, brown hat. But this whole story is, again, just all around fun. I know that a lot of this is completely inaccurate as to how the future played out. I mean, in 1960 we hadn't even launched a man into space, let alone gotten a mission of Mars off the ground. In fact, we're still working on that last one there. But you don't look back at stories like this and laugh at how much the authors got wrong. You look at it and see just how much fun it is. Plus, the art is gorgeous, especially with the way it's recolored in this trade. Weisinger and Sherman only have four pages to tell their story, and both of them do it effectively and efficiently, still getting the whole wonder of the alien planet Mars down in that small space. It's not as sweeping as we'll get to with later stories that involve Earthlings traveling to other worlds, but it's a nice golden age piece. But now it's time to just, just imagine, imagine if, if the sun went out. Some future day, our sun will burn itself out and the once blazing solar orb will become a cold, dead star. The earth will begin to freeze and giant glaciers will sweep the continents. Mad's instinct for self-preservation will send him burrowing miles beneath the earth's surface to live in subterranean caverns. Wizard engineers would sink shafts, deep into the world's core, tap the heat from the Earth's internal fires. Plant life would be nourished by giant artificial sun lamps. But man would not be content to dwell underground. Scientists would build a ring of cosmic guns around our sunless world, fire atom bombs at our nearest spatial neighbor, the moon. In time, the countless atom bombs would charge the moon with radioactive energy, causing it to radiate light and heat across the gulf of space. The man-made sun would enable mortals once again to inhabit the upper world that is their rightful domain. And now it's time for another break. When I get back, I'll be delving into the Silver Age. Calabac, it is sad. It is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Hootsu podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends, so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of a DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning, Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom, Stranger, Itchic and Arisia and Woody Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mm -hmm. Mr. Mitzelfuzzle. Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. By the time the 1950s and early 1960s came around, science fiction was entering an age where it was becoming more of the American mainstream, especially since our world was full of technological and scientific advancement. The person who led DC into the science fiction of the 1950s and the oncoming silver age of comics of the 1960s was Julius Schwartz. In Les Daniels' book on DC Comics, Schwartz says, I love science fiction. I had a number of science fiction people writing for me, including Manly Wade Wellman, Otto Binder, and Edmund Hamilton. Schwartz would wind up utilizing these talents in titles like Strange Adventures, and Mystery in Space. On a side note, by the way, according to Schwartz, it was the cover to Strange Adventures number 8 that started the trend of talking gorillas in DC Comics. As Daniels mentions, the cover showed a gorilla in a zoo holding up a slate that said, please believe me, I am the victim of a terrible scientific experiment. This incredibly incredible story of an ape with a human brain has strong sales, and Schwartz recalls that Erwin Donafell called me in and said we should do try it again. Finally, all the editors wanted to use gorilla covers, and he said no more than one a month. <laughs> anyway, some of the famous characters to come out of this age were the Space Cabby, Adam Strange, and of course, John Johns, the Martian Manhunter, who would become an integral part of the Justice League of America throughout its history. My selection is War on Earth and Ran, which was originally published in Mystery in Space, number 82 which came out on January 17, 1963, and was cover dated March of 1963. However, I am reading it from Strange Adventures number 242, which reprinted the issue and was released on March 22, 1973, with a cover date of July 1973. Why this one and not the original? Well, because I found this particular issue in a 50-cent bin. It's not in great condition by any means, but it was 50 cents, and it's an old comic, and I love old comics for 50 cents. Our creative team is... Gardner Fox and Story with Art by Carmine Infantino and Murphy Anderson. There are no letters of colors, credits. The editor was Julius Schwartz. The cover reprints the original cover by Infantino and Anderson and shows Adam Strange stand between standing between disasters and ran and new and Earth, and he's thinking My native planet Earth and my adopted planet Ran, each in deadly peril, there's time for me to save only one. Which shall it be? World war on Earth and Ran. I have to tell you, this is a near-perfect comic book cover. I say near-perfect because I like the Mystery in Space version slightly better than the reprint, mainly because the top third of Strange Adventures cover is taken up with a black bar and the title of Strange Adventures, but the Mystery in Space just honestly has a better logo, too. Um, a perfect, pretty much a perfect comic cover. It tells you what's going on, it teases a little bit, it gives you a little bit of drama, and the, po- the art's poster-worthy. So, it's a great pin-up. It's telling a story, it's just absolutely perfect. Great, great stuff. And our story starts with this The son of two worlds, Adam Strange battles against two awesome menaces an indestructible flying lens on his adapted planet of Ran, and an invulnerable boar on his native Earth. How can Adam possibly overcome them both as he fights a world war on Earth and Ran? Our splash page is Adam and his wife fighting the giant floating lens. So he start on Ran when Arlana greets him and he sees that there are people who are protesting his presence there. Adam doesn't know what's going on, but Alana explains that there are people on Ran who are backwards and don't see the advantage of him being there. Then they head to Ranagar, where Adam judges a science fair. While well, someone watches in the shadows and thinks about how he is a great inventor, but instead of sharing his invention with Ran, he'll use it to take over. That invention is a giant lens, which, when held up to Rand's sun, causes things to burn. Adam and Alana fight the lens while it begins burning the surface of the planet, but while they fight it, Adam's zeta beam wears off and he returns to Earth. On Earth, Adam learns that a scientist named Manlo Talifa has unleashed futuristic warplanes all over the Earth and demands to be made ruler of Earth. To prove this point, he blows up a model city on an island in the Pacific. Knowing he can't stand by idly, Adam takes to the skies and begins fighting the warplanes, but quickly finds himself outmatched and then sent back to Ran, where Alana meets him again, and she tells him that the lens is headed for Ranagar, and he does what he can to research whatever he can find about the lens. He eventually figures out that the person behind the lens is in each city and directs the lens from there, so that must mean that he's shipping the lens controller to himself in each city. So Adam and Alana hide in the local post office and wait for the guy to show up. When he does, Adam tackles him and arrests him, taking the controller and disabling the lens, which he then takes hold of and takes to Earth, where he uses it to destroy the futuristic warplanes. This is a great science fiction slash superhero story. Adam Strange is a character whose uniform is classic sci-fi, with the rocket pack and the ray gun, and the concept of a superhero being a person of two worlds is one that I've always thought works well, something beyond, especially it's something beyond a gimmick. In fact, it was used to great effect in the Invasion crossover in 1989, as the Zeta Beam wearing off allowed him to escape a space prison being run by the Dominators who were heading up the efforts to invade Earth. Beyond that, I've always found Adam Strange to be a character not unlike a Buck Rogers, that type of high-flying space hero who just lends himself to the quintessential out-of-this-world adventure. This adventure? Well, it definitely lives up to its name because it's a crisis on two worlds that Adam has to solve, and they're the type of crazy types of crises that are just the type of insane things you'd expect from a science fiction story of this era. After all, this is the era of invaders from Mars, and them, and all sorts of crazy sci-fi movies. And while it seems ridiculous, I can't sit here and make fun of it for that because, well, I didn't expect it to be anything else. The threat here on One World is a fleet of futuristic warplanes, something I guess anyone could see as a credible threat, especially if you consider how throughout comic books there are races with entire fleets of starships, some of whom have tried to invade Earth at one point or another. But Iran is threatened with what basically is a giant magnifying glass that's, trying to go in, that's going to burn them like ants. This should be quite possibly the most ridiculous and laughable thing in the world. I should be sitting back and laughing at this because I'm more sophisticated, and I'm a smarter comics fan who scoffs at stories like this. And it's a little ridiculous about how the bad guy on Ran is caught checking his mail, but really, the ridiculousness of the plot is what makes it so great. And this is the type of plot that you can really only do in comics when you really think about it. Trying to put a giant magnifying glass on a television or movie screen would be instant fodder for MST3K, but here, it just works perfectly. I think a big part of this is because not only does Gardner Fox write a tight story, but Carmine Infantino and Murphy Anderson draw some gorgeous art. This is the early 1960s, so this is Infantino at the top of his game, and Anderson is a great match, inks-wise. The images have the right amount of futuristic slickness to them that I think would be mishandled, by other, lesser artists. It's not any wonder that DC was successful with its science fiction during this era, and I can definitely see why Adam Strange is a breakout star. So I recommend trying to find this one if you get the chance. But for me, it's time to just imagine if an invading sun menaced Earth. In the future, another star might enter our solar system, approaching from outer space, It would become a second sun. Earthly eyes would see the strangest sight in history, twin suns in the sky, casting double shadows. The invading sun would sweep inward, come closer to Earth under the double solar barrage of radiant heat. The mercury would soar alarmingly. The terrific heat would make work impossible. Millions would flock to the oceans. Earth's average temperature fired by two suns would reach the point where our eternal ice caps would begin to melt. Glacier-bounded Greenland and Antarctica would lose their permanent blankets of snow. The North Pole would become part of an endless sea. Then, just as humanity seems doomed, the alien sun's velocity would carry it safely past Sol. However, a nearby planet like Mars in its path would probably be engulfed by its gravity. The invading star, like a robber baron, would careen back into the cosmos with its planetary ransom. And now it's time to move from the silver age of the 50s and the 60s to the bronze age of the 70s and the early 80s, a decade whose science fiction is known for its darker tones as well as lots of jumpsuits and hexagons. But seriously, if you watch enough science fiction that decade that isn't Star Wars, you notice know a significant tonal shift in the content. DC's science fiction contributions mostly centered around superheroes, such as Green Lantern and the Legion. However... There were non-superhero science fiction stories being published, although most of them were reprints in books such as Strange Adventures. But in 1979, DC did give another science fiction anthology series a shot, debuting Time Warp and Bringing Back Mystery in Space. These were filled with very short stories, many of which had classic sci-fi tropes, and while some of the stories are interesting, the titles didn't fare well and lasted until about 1981. The story I've got was originally featured in Mystery in Space number 114. It was from December 1980. It was written by T- Jerry Conway with art by Tom Yates. The title is Killing Time, and it's a six pager that centers around the classic science fiction trope of what would happen if someone went back in time and killed Adolf Hitler. We must try to imagine the scene, Mikhail. Through Lohmann's eyes, the high-powered concussion rifle, the viewfinder with its digital readouts for distance, wind velocity, and impact radius, and of course the target, gesturing eloquently as he exhorted the teeming crowd. Naturally, we can never really know how it actually happened, we only know that Lohmann succeeded. He traveled back through time over 100 years and assassinated Adolf Hitler at the Nuremberg rally in 1938, and thereby doomed us all to a lifetime of misery." Imagine the consternation and horror as the party chiefs saw their furor lying sprawl, sprawled and his body blackened and lifeless, struck down on the eve of his greatest triumph. And Loman, we can almost see his exhilaration, his joy, for he just hasn't just slain history's greatest murderer before the beginning of the Second World War, thereby saving the countless lives of millions. But only now would Loman realize his terrible error as the shocked crowds whirl, seeking their master's killer, and see Loman exposed and startled. Loman, who was above all things a peaceful man, who was driven to the act of assassination only by his grief for those dead millions, Loman, who completely unable to use his laser rifle to defend himself, and who thus paid the ultimate price for his ideals. But Loman would not be the only one to pay for his naive idealism. No, there were others whose lives would be collected in payment for Loman's folly, and thanks to Loman's gift, history would be changed indeed. But in our, in our new world, instead of being praised as the savior of millions, Loman is cursed as the supreme betrayer of mankind, the architect of 100 years of Nazi rule. So in the future, this professor is telling me, Kyle, that he knows that in another timeline, the Nazis lost the war because Lohmann was from that timeline. He left the records of his plans in a time bubble that exists outside of the time stream, meaning that they can duplicate those plans and create a time machine that takes Michal back to Germany to stop Lohmann from killing Hitler. Michal goes back in time and raises his rifle, and the last page and a half has the professor saying this. Each one of us perceives that our world is the only possible reality, but with time travel, an infinity of worlds becomes not only possible, but probable. Loman went back in time one in one world, and now you go back in another reality for another motive. Perhaps someone else will go back from another reality, and on and on, but it doesn't matter. Otto, he says him back, sends him back, and he says, Yes, Otto, try to picture him, if you can. A fool who thinks he can remake the change of by, future by changing the past. Imagine him appearing behind the stage overlooking the the rally, so full of hopes and dreams, kneeling and taking aim when one laser blast crushing the dream of a thousand-year Reich. In this world, he succeeded. But we can change it, Otto. We can have our thousand-year Reich. You know what you must do, Otto. You know what you must do, Evan. You know what you must do, Sergeant. You You know what you must do. You know what you must do. You know what you must do. So, one of the points made in the introduction to the 1970s Bronze Age portion of Mystery in Space, the trade paperback, is that the stories in anthologies like Time Warp and the new Mystery in Space were too short, so the writers couldn't go too in-depth with the stories. This hurt the books, especially since similar concepts were being explored in other books. This story is too short, but Conway does what he can with the six pages that he has. It actually reminds me a little bit of the end of Back to the Future and something that's always intrigued me. When Marty goes back to 1985, he comes back a few minutes early in an attempt to stop Doc Brown's murder. So he shows up at the now Lone Pine Mall and sees himself as Doc Brown is killed. Then he goes back to 1955 and basically what happens, there's this perpetual loop in time where Marty will always be seeing himself go back in time. Here, there's no perpetual time loop, but instead there's like this extending line of people who are waiting to kill Hitler or kill the person who's going to kill Hitler or kill the person who's going to kill the person who's going to kill Hitler and so on. I'm sure that by the 10th or 11th of the time this happens, the line of assassins will be out the door and down the block, so to speak. But I do like how the ending shows that things really won't change despite the changes in the timeline. There will always be an assassin and there will always be an effort to change history. It's Twilight zone in a way. The artwork by Tom Yates is very much of its time, and it's actually very good. He uses a lot of dark shading in the trade paperback reprint. The colors pop off the page. It fits the mood of the story, which is the opposite of the whiz-bang stories of earlier eras very well. I personally loved this mystery in space science fiction trade. It was a great, cheap find. And so if you do come across it at a discount, I do highly recommend picking it up. But now, I'm going to tell you about how television will change your future. Science's new talking eye television will affect your life a thousand ways. This exclusive feature is not a prediction, but a preview. The time tomorrow you are sitting at your dinner table and suddenly a crimson bulb flashes on and off. Yes, that twinkling light is an urgent signal telling you to turn on your video set. Seconds later, you're eyewitness to a dramatic moment in history. Such as the Tele rule of tomorrow, which will flash you events as they happen. Science plans a thousand new uses for the miracle talking eye. Suppose you were a pupil at the Little Red Schoolhouse. But inside, today our television set brings us this glimpse of a total eclipse as through, seen through the giant telescope at Mount Palomar. In the same afternoon, this is a close up of a paramecium cell as seen through the electronic microscope at Yale University. Criminals will learn the power of television's all-seeing eye. In FBI headquarters, they'll track down criminals, as we see. The killer's face this flash in a hotel lobbies, restaurant and private homes and airports presently. And the citizen recognizes him, and they get him. Television, servant of man, industry will use its magic lens to save trapped miners. And this is how salvage crews will operate tomorrow. Television will be a boon to shut-ins. You'll be able to shadow sc- shop from the comfort of your chair. The magic carpet of television will shrink America to the size of your image screen, take you on sightseeing tours throughout the land. Television will conquer land, sea, and air, enable you to accompany the first space flight. And you will thrill to the sight of the first man to walk on the moon. With this next story, I'm going to move a little further on down the timeline, and into the mid-80s, with a science fiction trope that was relatively new in that decade, but has become pretty commonplace now, and that's the future as a post-apocalyptic wasteland. The series of movies that really has come to typify that type of story is the Mad Max series, which originally starred Mel Gibson and was recently rebooted with Mad Max Fury Road. DC didn't have the rights to a Mad Max comic or anything, but what it did do was take one of its most famous Western characters and transport him into a Mad Max type of world. The character was Jonah Hex, and the comic was Hex. Hex number 11 was cover dated July 1986. The cover is by Dennis Cowan and Dick Giordano and shows Batman kicking Hex off the top of the Statue of Liberty with the caption reading, Night of the Batman. Batman and Hex are both colored in an orange hue in the background behind them, and the statue is purple, which suggests that this place is this is taking place at sunset. It definitely serves the story inside well. It's a good cover. Dennis Cowan is one of those artists who I don't think gets enough credit, because he's quite good. Our story is titled Night of the Bat. The, the credits according to the comic are writer editor Michael Fleischer, Art Mark Teschiera, Inkers are Garzon and Marcos, Letterer Augustin Moss, and Colors by La Rose. Jonah Hex dives to the ground in the middle of a busy city street, dodging laser fire, and he thinks to himself about how he can't take a ride through town anymore with getting shot, without getting shot at. And the ships that are shooting at him, the pilot's commander radios that they can kill Hex, but make sure they retrieve the case of ammo he's carrying, which he'd apparently stolen back in issue number eight. One of the pilots gets himself into sights, and, while well, the ships suddenly are shot down by another ship. That ship lands and asks Hex if he's all right. He wants to know about the pilot, and that ship gets out and shows in a bloody uniform which belongs to Hex's ally, Stiletta. Elsewhere, underneath tons of rubble, a disfigured man tries to escape while simultaneously plotting against Hex. This has something to do with something that happened back in issue number seven. He thinks about his circumstances and how they're all Hex's fault, and as he does, an ally named Dr. Kinglet digs through the rubble and rescues him. But our mysterious disfigured man, in an effort to show the audience that he is evil, turns the tables on Kinglet, shooting him dead and stealing his oxygen mask and tank before climbing out of the rubble. Back on the surface, Hex is in the flying car that rescued him and Steve sees footage of Stiletta being tortured and killed, and they tell him they know who did it and where he is, and they want him to give and they want to give him the chance to get him. The person he's after, it's Batman. We then head to New York, where Batman is taking out a gang of gun smugglers because the guns are illegal in New York, and after he's done, he gets in his Batplane, heads to his headquarters, which is located inside the Statue of Liberty. In there, we see that this isn't Bruce Wayne, but someone who was once a lawyer and a world-class gymnast who grew up idolizing the original Batman. He's been studying Batman's career and deduced his identity, went to Gotham, found the original Batcave, and was in there when the disaster that created this post-apocalyptic world happened. His parents survived as well, but then were killed by an organization that was killing off advocates of arm controls and Jews. He then decided to become Batman and create his own costume in his a crusade to keep firearms out of New York. The following afternoon, the men who rescued Hex earlier in the issue are demonstrating how certain Terminator robots will help the city and that Batman is doing more harm than good. The city council disagrees and ends the meeting. Nighttime then approaches and Hex is sent out to get Batman. He begins by walking the streets and is soon spotted by the new version of the Dark Knight. There's a fight on the docks and Batman tries to fly away using his anti-gravity technology, but Hex throws a knife at him and hits his suit and damages the anti-gravity device, so he falls onto a rooftop. The fight continues on that rooftop, and Batman tries to escape again, but Hex jumps after him and sends both over the edge of the rooftop, plummeting to what will certainly be their deaths. Needless to say, to be continued. My feelings on this series and this issue are a bit mixed. I've never read an issue of Hex before, although I must confess I've always been a little curious as to how the concept worked. I knew through reading Who's Who, seeing house ads in the mid-80s books, and reading the history of the DC Universe, that at some point in his life, Jonah Hex fell into a time portal and wound up in a future where much of the world had been devastated by a nuclear holocaust. So it's was pretty much Jonah Hex as Mad Max. The series didn't have much of a lifespan after this. It was cancelled after issue 18. And it's clear to me that the main idea of bringing futuristic Batman is probably some attempt to boost some sales. At least a little bit. Does it work for the story? Eh, yes and no. The fight between Hex and Batman, which takes up pretty much all of the second half of the issue, is good. The cliffhanger of them going off the side of a rooftop, probably to falter to this, is also good. This is certainly helped by Mark Tatera's artwork. Uh, it's a very, very early credit for him. He'd make one more of a name for himself uh, at Marvel, where he would work on Ghost Rider or Wolverine in the early 90s. Uh, My first exposure to him, by the way, was not through either of those titles, but through the Les Daniels Marvel book, because he's the artist highlighted in the section about creating a Marvel comic. I also remember him on a few really solid issues of Wolverine that I owned back in 1991 and 92. Of course, this is some of his earliest work, and it's not as polished as it would be in the early 1990s, but he still has a good feel for action sequences and can do close-ups of faces very well. I'm assuming that the fight in this issue will lead to a team-up in the next issue because the story is a classic team-up stuff. Somebody's obviously manipulating the main character into thinking that another superhero is a bad guy, even though it's totally not true, and that sets up the fight, and most of the rest of the story is pretty derivative, or at least relies on much-used science fiction tropes. you got the man at a time who's the outlaw, you have the evil corporation, you literally have Terminator robots. Still... It's worth the 50 cents I paid for it. After all, this is Batman Beyond, before Batman Beyond was even thought of. I don't think we ever actually got a name for the new version of the Cape Crusader in this issue, but I like the idea that before the disaster, Batman had either retired or died, and Wayne Manor had basically been abandoned. Nothing about what actually happened to Bruce, Dick, or anyone else involved is given, just that the Batcave is still intact, so I guess that Batman's life or career may have ended abruptly enough for him not to get the chance to cover his tracks. So Batman's a legend. This guy figures out who he really was, and after his parents are gunned down in a manner very similar to Thomas and Martha Wayne, this guy decides to become Batman. There's something very Grendel about it, although Matt Wagner would do a much better job with that concept than the legacy of a character like Grendel in those books. But Matt Wagner also had years worth of stories to tell regarding this, and this is a quick two-parter in a series that cancels soon after. So... For what it's worth, Hex number 11 is pretty well done. As for the series as a whole, eh, based on this one issue, I'm not sure I'm going to really track down the rest of it. I might get the next issue, just to see if uh, if uh, if I can find it, to see how this story with Batman ends, but unless I find a huge run of this somewhere in a 50 cent bin or something, I don't think I'm going to go after it much further. It's a bit of an oddball. Not bad. Not particularly great either. Just an experiment that didn't quite work out the way DC probably hoped it would have. I'm going to head for a modern comic next. But before I do that, let's have a tale of Mr. Future. Since time began, it has been the dream of mortals to foretell the future. This is the astounding story of one man's daring predictions and how history provided him and how history proved him to be the world's greatest prophet. He is H.G. Wells, who saw tomorrow before it happened, and is still 100 years ahead of the calendar. One Sunday evening, several years ago, a stream broadcast startled America. Run for your lives, people! Men from Mars have landed, and landed on Earth. They're destroying all in their path with death rays. Run! Panic, grip the nation. I'll hide in the hills. And in the radio studio, it's war between Earth and Mars. Stop this broadcast! Mr. Orson Welles, you scared America. Thousands of listeners think this play is real. But we are only acting out H.G. Wells' novel, The War of the Worlds. Only a play, but it startled the country. Then in 1944, America's rocket plane stole the headlines. New, not in the opinion of world-renowned English writer, the late Herbert George Wells, I predicted rocket planes more than ten years ago in this book. Sorry, Andy. Blisteringly hot! Five or Two, vast sky fleets of rocket craft battling each other. And soon afterwards, science unlocked the power of the atom in New Mexico. Gave credit to the cyclotron. We have split the atom thanks to the vision of our scientist. But the men of science were scooped by H. G. Wells two decades ago, for in his book The World Set Free, the Imaginative Author forecast, a world liberated by science, with atomic energy to power, all machines dig canals, Nostradamus' legendary prophet guessed about the future foretold wars, Leonardo da Vinci, genius of the Middle Ages, predicted the tomorrow, but history has proved H.G. Wells to be the greatest seer of all time. For the vivid imagination of this amazing prophet, writer predicted many other marvels to come. In his story, The Time Machine, H.G. Wells told of an invention which makes it possible for one to visit the past and the future. It was all done with a little gadget. No one will ever forget the strange experiment described in Wells' story, The Invisible Man. When this syrup takes effect, I will be invisible. The experiment worked, but a criminal stole the secret and, you may well get used to the idea of an invisible robber. Where's that voice coming from? Ah! ah. Not so long ago, we read of, ra- of a radar beam meet reaching the moon, but in his novel, The First Men in the Moon, Mr. Future told of spaceships visiting Earth's satellite. Ready for a landing, hello Earth, trip a success dreams you call these predictions by hg wells think the fantasy of today are the realities of tomorrow and mr future has taught us that science can achieve the impossible So when I started to plan out this mini-series, one of the questions I had to ask myself was just how I'm going to cover the various imprints that DC has had in the last 20-so years. There's been Paradox Press, Piranha Press, Minx, Helix, and Wildstorm, to name a few. Some have been more successful than others, and at least in the case of Wildstorm, were imprints that were bought instead of launched. So I kind of sort of decided not to go down that route and decided just to stick to genres instead of imprints. There's one exception to that rule, and that is Vertigo. I personally do not own a ton of Vertigo comics, but I do know that I can't ignore DC's most popular and most well-regarded imprint, especially since it was created a couple of years after I started collecting comic books, and it has made a significant contribution to the comic landscape over its 20 years. My original thought was, oh, I'll just get to Vertigo when I get to horror, because horror was the first thing I associated with that line of books. However, as I did a little research into the imprint's history, I discovered that calling Vertigo DC's horror line is horribly inaccurate vertigo spans multiple genres from action adventure to horror fantasy and science fiction so what i'm going to do is instead spotlight a vertigo book in this episode and the two after episodes that which will become covering horror and fantasy respectively that way i'm able to take a look at a halfway decent sampling of vertigo through its some of its well-known titles what I have here is an original graphic novel from Warren Ellis and Colleen Doran, entitled Orbiter. Orbiter was first published in hardcover on april twenty third, two thousand three and retail for twenty four ninety five, with the softcover coming out on may twelfth, twenty fourteen and re- retailing from seventeen ninety five. If you do digital, it's currently available on Comixology in its entirety for twelve ninety nine or on its own, or in a deluxe edition two pack with another Warren Ellis science fiction graphic novel called Ocean for $19.99. The credits on Orbiter are writer Warren Ellis, artist Colleen Doran, letterer Clem Robbins, colorist Dave Stewart. The cover was painted by Doran and the logo was, a, was designed by Astrolux Design. It's dedicated to the crew of the Space Shuttle Columbia, which disintegrated upon re entry on February 1, 2003. We open in what was once the Kennedy Space Center, but is now a community of homeless, much like a Depression-era Hooverville. People forage for food, boil seawater, and fight over the smallest things. A kid is sent to get seawater and climbs a hill to see it and hears a loud boom. A fireball comes toward all of them, and they soon realize that it's a space shuttle and that it's going to crash right on top of them. It is the Space Shuttle Venture, which was the last shuttle ever launched. Ten years earlier, it had disappeared from Earth orbit. Soon, NASA starts assembling a team to investigate the venture. We have Rochelle Robeson, a biologist and the last living astronaut who is a team supervisor, Terry Marks, a physicist from the Jet Propulsion Lab, and Anna Bracken, who is a psychiatrist who once was in charge of vetting the astronauts for spaceflight. For space they head to Cape Canaveral, where NASA and the military have come in and are cleaning out the area, which includes disposing of all the bodies that were underneath the venture when it crashed, and are amazed to find the shuttle completely intact. They are met by Colonel Bukovich of the US Space Command who tells them that it's their job to explain what happened and most importantly, why the venture is covered in skin. Not only that, but there is one surviving crew member, John Cost, the mission commander and pilot who appears to be completely insane. And one more thing about the shuttle, the landing gear has sand in it from Mars. Marx gets to work on figuring out how the venture got to Mars, which is physically impossible because the orbiter was never designed for such a mission, and he's ecstatic, saying, someone is teaching us how to fly again, let's see if we can understand the lesson. Robison is tasked with figuring out how the shuttle wound up with a layer of skin, and also why it went to Mars. Bracken is tasked with talking to John Cost, who is currently quarantined in a cell from the very early days in the space program. Bukovich plays Bracken in the tape of the crew discovering Cost and see him in an air catatonic state babbling something in a completely foreign language before he attacks this crew Bukovich says Kost is considered dangerous and Dr. Rowan, who's working with Robeson states that they've done a physical workup on Kost and he's not only completely healthy but internally he's about 5-10 to 10 years younger than he should be Bracken tries talking to him he's catatonic at first then he acknowledges her she tries to get him to relax and imagine a place that he finds to be a good place his happy place his happy place is the night before a flight with nobody around Bracken plays into it and said it's going to be a good flight, just the way you always want them to be, and he says yes. She begins walking him through the countdown commands, and his eyes laid up, and he repeats all of his usual dialogue for the launch. He then starts running through what seems to be memories of that flight. They're in orbit, and the systems start malfunctioning. He's about to abort the mission when suddenly he sees something, and he says it's incredible. Cost then starts screaming and has a seizure, and he's put down by Dr. Rowan. Robeson has a phone call with her soon-to-be ex-husband who says that the reason they broke up is he could never compete with space. Meanwhile, Mark struggles with the physics involved in getting the shuttle to Mars and has a conversation with Bracken who tells him about cost condition and how it doesn't make sense. Not only that, she mentions that on the video she saw the afternoon the soldiers were reacting to the inside of the orbiters that the gravity was heavier inside. Marks insists on going onto the venture because he thinks that the shuttle got to Mars by somehow altering gravity and riding that gravity wave quickly to Mars. Bracken suggests that perhaps the venture didn't just go to Mars. The next morning, Marks heads to the venture and tells Robeson he's pretty sure that the orbiter was taken elsewhere by intelligent life forms. Robeson's team gets in to retrieve some of the engine parts and works on getting through the skin. One of the people on Marx's team, a UC Berkeley student named Ali, says perhaps the difference in gravity happened when the shuttle was powered on, so powering, up, powering it up would let him see that. Robeson's team examines what makes up the skin and its properties and then cuts into it. Marx's team has also cut into it. He feeds a fiber optic cable through to examine it and sees what looks like an internal organ, almost like a heart. And he comes to the conclusion that Koss really really was in space for 10 years. And it's possible that the shuttle was equipped with some sort of extraterrestrial power to make it seem to him that the amount of time that had passed was only about a year. Bracken returns to Cost, Robeson and Marks listen. He begins walking once again through the mission. He's alone on the shuttle and he's orbiting Mars. He explains how he does it and exactly what Mark says it was. Riding gravity. And then he explains how he was able to walk on Mars, which is by having the shuttle skin give him a spacesuit suit or shorts. The team meets with Bukovic and briefs on everything they've discovered and are practically giddy about the possibility of interstellar space travel that the Venture is bringing. Bukovic is skeptical. Bracken says she'll need to talk to Cost again. She goes to see him again and then says they're going to talk about her, Marx and Robeson, how Robeson feels trapped in this planet, how Marx wanted to build rockets, and then there's her who wanted to talk to astronauts and see space through their eyes. She explains that she's already given Robeson and Marx an enormous amount of purpose again, and she wants him to talk to her so she can make some sense out of all of it. Cost begins talking about the mission. When they got to orbit, there was this, There was a little complaining about how they never seemed to get down, get to do what the Apollo astronauts did. But that talks interrupted by an alarm. They lose everything quickly, and then whatever hit the shuttle enveloped it. He then says he wants to see it. The venture. She takes him out of the room. And she asks and asks him where it went. He says that it went just out of sight, which was the dark side of the moon. They were then engulfed in a bright light, and a voice says that they have nothing to be afraid of, that they have so many things to show them, and that they want them to come with them. Essentially, as Koss says, these aliens were almost childlike, asking them to come over to their house and play. The crew went with them. He stayed behind. Why? Because it's his responsibility to bring the ship home, and they refitted the ship to get him home. Then he says that they want to be found and meet up with the crew. Marks asks why it took 10 years to get back, and Costas explains that he was given a grand tour of space. They go on to the venture, and he sits in his chair, and then he says, You know, the 10 years you said it didn't go that slow. Slow enough, but like I said, it doesn't matter. Sometimes they're almost like us. They said to me, you have the scariest thing to do, don't you? You have to show your people the way to grow up, and you have to bring your people to your crew. Robus says that he's making an enormous amount of sense, and that the only thing they haven't figured out is how to fly the shuttle. Koss says that why he wa- that's why he wanted to come back onto the venture. He grabs a control lever and suddenly the skin inside the shuttle or the shuttle's organs as they are begin conforming around him. Marks leaves the shuttle quickly to pull Allie, the UC Berkeley girl who he's attracted to inside. Then the shuttle seals itself and they take off for the stars. There's a two-page introduction by Warren Ellis, which is all about what inspired Orbiter and how his love of the space program began when he was very young. In fact, his first memory is being of being held up in front of a movie screen to see the uh, a television screen to see the Apollo Eleven moon landing. So this is a very personal story, and you can tell it's also a story that is bereft of the type of action or horror you'd expect from something with this premise. I mean, we've seen the ghost spaceship movie ship returns and the the crew is crazy they have powers there's something on board that kills everyone there's an evil spirit that possesses someone and causes him to kill everyone or the military wants to keep it from the cells and it's up the correct team of heroes to steal it and take off of the stars you know what i'm talking about there's none of that in this it's flat out amazing this is not event horizon it's almost like a follow-up to 2001 a space odyssey but instead of dave Bowman but instead of Dave Bowman evolving at the end of the movie, he's tasked with returning the discovery to Earth and sending along a message of some sort. It's hard to do without putting action or horror into the story. What Ellis does is give us three main characters who are intriguing because of the ways in which they're flawed and essentially empty. All of them, as Bracken explains when she talks to Cost in that final meeting before they get on the shuttle, are missing something because of what happened after the venture disappeared. And we get that from right off the bat. Robeson is listless and has seen her marriage disintegrate. Marx is excited, almost like a child, and he finally gets into the shuttle. Bracken seems almost scared to approach the mission. When she lays all that off her cost in the end and gets him to talk, it's brilliant because they all realize that he's their missing link. He's the one thing that is going to get all of them to feel alive again. So it winds up being a moment of triumph when they head off to space, and even Bukovic, who is supposed to be the hardliner, military guy who would kill them if he has to protect the classified information, isn't a stereotype. In fact, he serves two logical purposes. Be the person in charge of everything, because that's how this would work if it really happened, and be the stand-in for the audience, in that scene where the three of them basically lay out everything they have discovered so we can understand it as well. I see what Ellis did there, and it totally works. What also makes this such a great story is that Ellis not only takes his time getting all the facts of the venture's journey out, but takes pains to have the scientists involved with the investigation actually do their jobs in a way that makes sense. This isn't a procedural where it seems that all of the science was written by stringing together a bunch of words that sounded scientific enough for the audience to believe it's science. It actually seems to make sense. I mean, granted, I'm not a physicist, but we're reading again. I, I want to like hand this... To Neil deGrasse Tyson, and ask him if this is accurate, because it, it it seems logical and it seems realistic to me, and it really seems like Ellis did his homework, so to speak. Finally. There's Colin Doran's art, which is absolutely beautiful. The skin and internal organs in the shuttle are gross where they have to be, of course, but, and so is the devastation of the Hooverville that adventure destroys at the beginning of the book. But otherwise, Doran strikes the perfect balance between light and dark and doesn't go in the direction of something too surreal or abstract. In fact, what I have seen in the Oni series, Letter 44, is a lot like this, which is one of the reasons I like that series so much. But what she does use is multi-panel grids incredibly well and peppers the book with the shots of the venture flying through space past all sorts of planets in a way that shows her own love for space travel and the space program in the hands of someone whom ellis had worked with on some of his superhero books so they like say brian hitch this wouldn't have worked because it needs her artistry And if it sounds like I'm gushing about Orbiter, it's because I am. This is a piece that I would recommend to anyone, especially anyone who enjoys science fiction and is looking for sci-fi that is replete with all the tired tropes that seem to have overtaken a lot of our current movies and television shows. It is still in print, and and you can find it, like I said, digitally. In Stock Trades has it for $10.43. It's a hell of a bargain. So go now, go. Am I right? Anyway... That does it for science fiction at DC Comics. I hope you enjoyed this trip to other worlds through other times. Next up, coming in about a week, if I stay on on this modified version of the schedule that I've drawn up for myself here, I'm going to tackle the genre that is wholly appropriate for October, and that's horror. So until then, thanks for listening, and take care. Thank you for listening to Eighty Years of DC Comics, a podcast miniseries presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and two True Freaks. All comics talked about in this episode are copyright DC Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and no money is made, no infringement is intended. You can find show notes and supplemental information on this episode at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at PopcultureAffidavit.com. Interested in leaving feedback? You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Thanks for listening and come back next month for another look at the history of DC Comics.